This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 9 and 10 from The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. And now, chapter 9. June 21st, the day of the birthday, was cloudy and unsettled at sunrise, but towards noon it cleared up bravely. We, in the servants' hall, began this happy anniversary, as usual, by offering our little presents to Miss Rachel with the regular speech delivered annually by me as the chief. I follow the plan adopted by the Queen in opening Parliament, namely, the plan of saying much the same thing regularly every year. Before it is delivered, my speech, like the Queen's, is looked for as eagerly as if nothing of the kind had ever been heard before. When it is delivered, and turns out not to be the novelty anticipated, though they grumble a little, they look forward hopefully to something newer next year and easy people to govern, in the Parliament and in the kitchen. That's the moral of it. After breakfast, Mr. Franklin and I had a private conference on the subject of the Moonstone, the time having now come for removing it from the bank at Prison Hall and placing it in Miss Rachel's own hands. Whether he had been trying to make love to his cousin again, and had got a rebuff, or whether his broken rest, night after night, was aggravating the queer contradictions and uncertainties in his character, I don't know, but certain it is that Mr. Franklin failed to show himself at his best on the morning of the birthday. He was in twenty different minds about the diamond in as many minutes. For my part, I stuck fast by the plain facts as we knew them. Nothing had happened to justify us in alarming my lady on the subject of the jewel, and nothing could alter the legal obligation that now lay on Mr. Franklin to put it in his cousin's possession. That was my view of the matter. And, twist and turn as he might, he was forced in the end to make it his view too. We arranged that he was to ride over, after lunch, to Prison Hall, and bring the diamond back, with Mr. Godfrey and the two young ladies, in all probability to keep him company on the way home again. This settled, our young gentlemen went back to Miss Rachel. They consumed the whole morning, and part of the afternoon, in the everlasting business of decorating the door. Penelope standing by to mix the colors, as directed, and my lady, as luncheon time drew near, going in and out of the room, with her handkerchief to her nose, for they used a deal of Mr. Franklin's vehicle that day, and trying vainly to get the two artists away from their work. It was three o'clock before they took off their aprons, and released Penelope, much the worse for the vehicle, and cleaned themselves of their mess. But they had done what they wanted. They had finished the door on the birthday, and proud enough they were of it. The griffins, cupids, and so on were, I must own, most beautiful to behold, though so many in number, 
so entangled in flowers and devices, and so topsy-turvy in their actions and attitudes, that you felt them unpleasantly in your head for hours after you had done with the pleasure of looking at them. If I add that Penelope ended her part of the morning's work by being sick in the back kitchen, it is in no unfriendly spirit towards the vehicle. No, no. It left off stinking when it dried, and if art requires these sort of sacrifices, though the girl is my own daughter, I say, let art have them. Mr. Franklin snatched a morsel from the luncheon table and rode off to prison hall to escort his cousins, as he told my lady, to fetch the moonstone, as was privately known to himself and to me. This being one of the high festivals on which I took my place at the sideboard, in command of the attendants at table, I had plenty to occupy my mind while Mr. Franklin was away. Having seen to the wine, and reviewed my men and women who were to wait at dinner, I retired to collect myself before the company came. A whiff of, you know what, and a turn of a certain book which I have had occasion to mention in these pages, composed me, body and mind. I was aroused from what I am inclined to think must have been, not a nap, but a reverie, by the clatter of horses' hoofs outside, and going to the door, received a cavalcade comprising Mr. Franklin and his three cousins, escorted by one of old Mr. Abelwhite's grooms. Mr. Godfrey struck me, strangely enough, as being like Mr. Franklin in this respect, that he did not seem to be in his customary spirits. He kindly shook hands with me, as usual, and was most politely glad to see his old friend Betteredge wearing so well. But there was a sort of cloud over him, which I couldn't at all account for. And when I asked how he had found his father in health, he answered rather shortly, much as usual. However, the two Miss Abelwhites were cheerful enough for twenty, which more than restored the balance. They were nearly as big as their brother, spanking, yellow-haired, rosy lices, overflowing with superabundant flesh and blood, bursting from head to foot with health and spirits. The legs of the poor horses trembled with carrying them, and when they jumped from their saddles, without waiting to be helped, I declare they bounced on the ground as if they were made of India rubber. Everything the Miss Abelwhites said began with a large O. Oh. Everything they did was done with a bang, and they giggled and screamed, in season and out of season, on the smallest provocation. Bouncers, that's what I call them. Under cover of the noise made by the young ladies, I had an opportunity of saying a private word to Mr. Franklin in the hall. Have you got the diamonds safe, sir? He nodded and tapped the breast pocket of his coat. "'Have you seen anything of the Indians?' "'Not a glimpse.' "'With that answer, he asked for my lady, "'and hearing she was in the small drawing-room, "'went there straight. "'The bell rang before he had been a minute in the room, "'and Penelope was sent to tell Miss Rachel "'that Mr. Franklin Blake wanted to speak to her. "'Crossing the hall, about half an hour afterwards, "'I was brought to a sudden standstill "'by an outbreak of screams from the small drawing-room. "'I can't say I was at all alarmed,' "'for I recognized in the screams "'the favorite large O of the Miss Abelwhites. "'However, I went in, "'on pretense of asking for instructions about the dinner, "'to discover whether anything serious had really happened. "'There stood Miss Rachel at the table, "'like a person fascinated, "'with the Colonel's unlucky diamond in her hand. "'There, on either side of her, "'knelt the two bouncers, "'devouring the jewel with their eyes.' "'and screaming with ecstasy every time it flashed on them in a new light. "'There, at the opposite end of the table, stood Mr. Godfrey, "'clapping his hands like a large child, 
and singing out softly, "'Exquisite! Exquisite!' There sat Mr. Franklin in a chair by the bookcase, tugging at his beard and looking anxiously towards the window. And there, at the window, stood the object he was contemplating. My lady, having the extract from the colonel's will in her hand, keeping her back turned on the whole of the company. She faced me when I asked for my instructions, and I saw the family frown gathering over her eyes, and the family temper twitching at the corners of her mouth. "'Come to my room in half an hour,' she answered. "'I shall have something to say to you then.' With those words, she went out. It was plain enough that she was posed by the same difficulty which had posed Mr. Franklin and me in our conference at the Shivering Sand. Was the legacy of the Moonstone a proof that she had treated her brother with cruel injustice, or was it proof that he was worse than the worst she had ever thought of him? Serious questions, those, for my lady to determine, while her daughter, innocent of all knowledge of the colonel's character, stood there with the colonel's birthday gift in her hand. Before I could leave the room in my turn, Miss Rachel, always considerate to the old servant who had been in the house when she was born, stopped me. "'Look, Gabriel,' she said, and flashed the jewel before my eyes in a ray of sunlight that poured through the window. "'Lord bless us, it was a diamond, and as large, or nearly, as a plover's egg. The light that streamed from it was like the light of the harvest moon. When you looked down into the stone, you looked into a yellow deep that drew your eyes into it so that they saw nothing else. It seemed unfathomable, this jewel.' "'that you could hold between your finger and thumb, "'seemed unfathomable as the heavens themselves. "'We set it in the sun, "'and then shut the light out of the room, "'and it shone awfully out of the depths of its own brightness "'with a moony gleam in the dark. "'No wonder Miss Rachel was fascinated. "'No wonder her cousin screamed. "'The diamond laid such a hold on me "'that I burst out with as large an O "'as the bouncers themselves.' The only one of us who kept his senses was Mr. Godfrey. He put an arm round each of his sister's waist, and, looking compassionately backwards and forwards between the diamond and me, said, "'Carbon, Betteredge, mere carbon, my good friend, after all.' His object, I suppose, was to instruct me. All he did, however, was to remind me of the dinner. I hobbled off to my army of waiters downstairs. As I went out, Mr. Godfrey said, "'Dear old Betteredge, I have the truest regard for him.' He was embracing the sisters and ogling Miss Rachel while he honoured me with that testimony of affection. Something like a stock of love to draw on there. Mr. Franklin was a perfect savage by comparison with him. At the end of half an hour, I presented myself, as directed, in my lady's room. What passed between my mistress and me on this occasion was, in the main, a repetition of what had passed between Mr. Franklin and me at the Shivering Sand, with this difference, that I took care to keep my own counsel about the jugglers, seeing that nothing had happened to justify me in alarming my lady on this head. When I received my dismissal, I could see that she took the blackest view possible of the colonel's motives, and that she was bent on getting the moonstone out of her daughter's possession at the first opportunity. On my way back to my own part of the house, I was encountered by Mr. Franklin. He wanted to know if I had seen anything of his cousin Rachel. I had seen nothing of her. Could I tell him where his cousin Godfrey was? I didn't know. 
but I began to suspect that Cousin Godfrey might not be far away from Cousin Rachel. Mr. Franklin's suspicions apparently took the same turn. He tugged hard at his beard, and went and shut himself up in the library with a bang of the door that had a world of meaning in it. I was interrupted no more in the business of preparing for the birthday dinner till it was time for me to smarten myself up for receiving the company. Just as I had got my white waistcoat on, Penelope presented herself at my toilet, on pretense of brushing what little hair I have got left, and improving the tie of my white cravat. My girl was in high spirits, and I saw she had something to say to me. She gave me a kiss on top of my bald head, and whispered, "'News for you, father. Miss Rachel has refused him.' "'Who's him?' I asked. "'The ladies' committee man, father,' says Penelope. "'A nasty, sly fellow.' I hate him for trying to supplant Mr. Franklin. If I had had breath enough, I should certainly have protested against this indecent way of speaking of an eminent philanthropic character. But my daughter happened to be improving the tie of my cravat at that moment, and the whole strength of her feelings found its way into her fingers. I never was more nearly strangled in my life. I saw him take her away alone into the rose garden, says Penelope, and I waited behind the holly to see how they came back. They had gone out arm in arm, both laughing. They came back, walking separate, as grave as grave could be, and looking straight away from each other in a manner which there was no mistaking. I never was more delighted, father, in my life. There's one woman in the world who can resist Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite, at any rate, and if I was a lady, I should be another. Here I should have protested again, but my daughter had got the hairbrush by this time, and the whole strength of her feelings had passed into that. If you're bald, you will understand how she sacrificed me. If you are not, skip this bit, and thank God you've got something in the way of a defense between your hairbrush and your head. Just on the other side of the holly, Penelope went on, Mr. Godfrey came to a standstill. You prefer, says he, that I should stop here as if nothing had happened? Miss Rachel turned on him like lightning. "'You have accepted my mother's invitation,' she said, "'and you are here to meet her guests. "'Unless you wish to make a scandal in the house, "'you will remain, of course.' "'She went on a few steps, "'and then seemed to relent a little. "'Let us forget what has passed, Godfrey,' "'she said, she said, "'and let us remain cousins still. "'She gave him her hand. "'He kissed it, "'which I should have considered taking a liberty. "'And then she left him. "'He waited a little by himself.' "'with his head down, and his heel grinding a hole slowly in the gravel walk. "'You never saw a man look more put out in your life.' "'Awkward,' he said between his teeth, when he looked up and went on to the house. "'Very awkward.' "'If that was his opinion of himself, he was quite right. "'Awkward enough, I'm sure. "'And the end of it is, father, what I told you all along,' cries Penelope. "'finishing me off with a last scarification on my bald head. "'The hottest of all. "'Mr. Franklin's the man!' "'I finally grabbed possession of the hairbrush "'and opened my lips to administer the reproof "'which, you alone, my daughter's language and conduct, "'richly deserved. "'But before I could say a word, "'a crash of carriage wheels outside struck in and stopped me. "'The first of the dinner company had come. "'Penelope instantly ran off. "'I put on my coat and looked in the glass. My head was as red as a lobster, but in other respects 
"'I was as nicely dressed for the ceremonies of the evening as a man need be. "'I got into the hall just in time to announce the two first of the guests. "'You needn't feel particularly interested about them. "'Only the philanthropist's father and mother, Mr. and Mrs. Abelwhite. We'll return with Chapter 10, right after these sponsor messages. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day. At sax.com. And now, Chapter 10. On one on top of the other, the rest of the company followed the Abelwhites till we had the whole tale of them complete. Including the family, it was 24 in all. It was a noble sight to see when they were settled in their places round the dinner table, and the rector of prison hall, with beautiful elocution, rose and said, Grace, there's no need to worry you with a list of the guests. "'You will meet none of them a second time, "'in my part of the story, at any rate, "'with the exceptions of two. "'Those two sat on either side of Miss Rachel, "'who, as queen of the day, "'was naturally the great attraction of the party. "'On this occasion she was more particularly "'the center point towards which everybody's eyes were directed, "'for, to my lady's secret annoyance, "'she wore her wonderful birthday present, "'which eclipsed all the rest, the moonstone.' It was without any setting when it had been placed in her hands, but that universal genius, Mr. Franklin, had contrived, with the help of his neat fingers and a little bit of silver wire, to fix it as a brooch in the bosom of her white dress. Everybody wondered at the prodigious size and beauty of the diamond, as a matter of course, but the only two of the company who said anything out of the common way about it were those two guests I have mentioned, who sat by Miss Rachel on her right and on her left. The guest on her left was Mr. Candy, our doctor at prison hall. This was a pleasant, companionable little man, with the drawback, however, I must own, of being too fond, in season and out of season, of his jokes, and of his plunging, in rather a headlong manner, into talk with strangers, without waiting to feel his way first. In society, he was constantly making mistakes, and setting people unintentionally by the ears together. In his practical practice, he was a more prudent man, "'picking up his discretion, as his enemies said, "'by a kind of instinct, "'and proving to be generally right "'when more carefully conducted doctors "'turned out to be wrong. "'What he said about the diamond to Miss Rachel "'was said, as usual, "'by way of a mystification, or joke. "'He gravely entreated her, "'in the interests of science, "'to let him take it home and burn it. "'We will first heat it, Miss Rachel,' "'says the doctor, "'to such and such a degree.' Then we will expose it to a current of air, and little by little, puff, we evaporate the diamond, and spare you a world of anxiety about the safe keeping of a valuable precious stone. My lady, listening with rather a careworn expression on her face, seemed to wish that the doctor had been in earnest, and that he could have found Miss Rachel zealous enough in the cause of science to sacrifice her birthday gift. The other guest, who sat on my young lady's right hand, was an eminent public character, being no other than the celebrated Indian traveler, Mr. Murthwaite, who, at the risk of his life, had penetrated in disguise where no European had ever set foot before. This was a long, lean, wiry, brown, silent man, 
he had a weary look and a very steady, attentive eye. It was rumored that he was tired of the humdrum life among the people in our parts and longing to go back and wander off on the tramp again in the wild places of the East. Except what he said to Miss Rachel about her jewel, I doubt if he spoke six words or drank so much as a single glass of wine all through the dinner. The moonstone was the only object that interested him in the smallest degree. The fame of it seemed to have reached him in some of those perilous Indian places where his wanderings had lain. After looking at it silently for so long a time that Miss Rachel began to get confused, he said to her in his cool, immovable way, "'If you ever go to India, Miss Verinder, don't take your uncle's birthday gift with you. A Hindu diamond is sometimes part of a Hindu religion. I know a certain city and a certain temple in that city where, dressed as you are now, your life would not be worth five minutes' purchase.' Miss Rachel, safe in England, was quite delighted to hear of her danger in India. The bouncers were more delighted still. They dropped their knives and forks with a crash and burst out together vehemently. Oh, how interesting! My lady fidgeted in her chair and changed the subject. As the dinner got on, I became aware, little by little, that this festival was not prospering as other like festivals had prospered before it. Looking back at the birthday now, by the light of what happened afterwards, I'm half inclined to think that the cursed diamond must have cast a blight on the whole company. I plied them well with wine, and being a privileged character, followed the unpopular dishes round the table, and whispered to the company confidentially, Please to change your mind and try it, for I know it will do you good. Nine times out of ten they changed their minds, out of regard for their old original better edge, they were pleased to say, but all to no purpose. There were gaps of silence in the talk as the dinner got on that made me feel personally uncomfortable. When they did use their tongues again, they used them innocently in the most unfortunate manner and to the worst possible purpose. Mr. Candy, the doctor, for instance, said more unlucky things than I've ever knew him to say before. Take one sample of the way in which he went on, and you will understand what I had to put up with at the sideboard officiating as I was in the character of a man who had the prosperity of the festival at heart. One of our ladies present at dinner was worthy Miss Threadgall, widow of the late professor of that same name. Talking of her deceased husband perpetually, this good lady never mentioned to strangers that he was deceased. She thought, I suppose, that every able-bodied adult in England ought to know as much as that. In one of the gaps of silence, "'Somebody mentioned the dry and rather nasty subject of human anatomy, "'whereupon good Mrs. Threadgall straightway brought in her late husband as usual, "'without mentioning that he was dead. "'She described anatomy as the professor's favorite recreation in his leisure hours. "'As ill luck would have it, Mr. Candy, sitting opposite, "'who knew nothing of the deceased gentleman, heard her. "'Being the most polite of men, "'he seized the opportunity of assisting the professor's anatomical amusements on the spot.' "'They have got some remarkably fine skeletons lately at the College of Surgeons,' says Mr. Candy, across the table, in a loud, cheerful voice. "'I strongly recommend the professor, ma'am, when he next has an hour to spare, to pay them a visit.' "'You could have heard a pinfall. The company, out of respect to the professor's memory, all sat speechless. I was behind Mrs. Threadgall at the time, plying her confidentially with a glass of hock. She dropped her head, and said in a very low voice, "'My beloved husband is no more.' 
Unluckily, Mr. Candy, hearing nothing, and miles away from suspecting the truth, went on across the table, louder and politer than ever. <clears throat> the professor may not be aware, says he, that the card of a member of the college will admit him on any day but Sunday, between the hours of ten and four. Mrs. Threadgall dropped her head right into her tucker, and, in a lower voice still, repeated the solemn words, "'My beloved husband is no more.' I winked hard at Mr. Candy across the table. Miss Rachel touched his arm. My lady looked unutterable things at him. Quite useless. On he went, with a cordiality that there was no stopping anyhow. "'I shall be delighted,' says he, "'to send the professor my card.' "'if you will oblige me by mentioning his present address.' "'His present address is the grave,' says Mrs. Threadgall, "'suddenly losing her temper, "'and speaking with an emphasis and fury "'that made the glasses ring again. "'The professor has been dead ten years.' "'Oh, good heavens,' says Mr. Candy. "'Accepting the bouncers, who burst out laughing, "'such a blank now fell on the company "'that they might all have been going the way of the professor.' "'and hailing as he did from the direction of the grave. "'So much for Mr. Candy. "'The rest of them were nearly as provoking in their different ways "'as the doctor himself. "'When they ought to have spoken, they didn't speak, "'or when they did speak, they were perpetually at cross-purposes. "'Mr. Godfrey, though so eloquent in public, "'declined to exert himself in private. "'Whether he was sulky or whether he was bashful, "'after his discomfiture in the Rose Garden, I can't say.' He kept all his talk for the private ear of the lady, a member of our family, who sat next to him. She was one of his committee women, a spiritually-minded person, with a fine show of collarbone and a pretty taste in champagne. Liked it dry, you understand, and plenty of it. Being close behind these two at the sideboard, I can testify, from what I heard pass between them, that the company lost a good deal of very improving conversation, which I caught up while drawing the corks and carving the mutton, and so forth. What they said about their charities, I didn't hear. When I had time to listen to them, they had got a long way beyond their women to be confined, and their women to be rescued, and were disputing on serious subjects. Religion, I understand Mr. Godfrey to say, between the corks and the carving, meant love, and love meant religion, and earth was heaven a little the worse for wear, and heaven was earth, "'done up again to look like new. "'Earth had some very objectionable people in it, "'but, to make amends for that, "'all the women in heaven would be members of a prodigious committee "'that never quarreled, "'with all the men in attendance on them as ministering angels. "'Beautiful! "'But why the mischief did Mr. Godfrey keep it all to his lady and himself? "'Mr. Franklin again. "'Surely, you'll say, "'Mr. Franklin stirred the company up "'into making a pleasant evening of it?' "'No, nothing of the sort. "'He had quite recovered himself, "'and he was in wonderful force and spirits, "'Penelope having informed him, I suspect, "'of Mr. Godfrey's reception in the Rose Garden. "'But, talk as he might, nine times out of ten "'he pitched on the wrong subject, "'or he addressed himself to the wrong person, "'the end of it being that he offended some "'and puzzled everyone. "'That foreign training of his, "'those French and German and Italian sides of him, "'to which I've already alluded, "'came out at my lady's hospitable board "'in a most bewildering manner. "'What do you think, for instance, 
of his discussing the lengths to which a married woman might let her admiration go for a man who is not her husband, and putting it in his clear-headed, witty French way, to the maiden aunt of the vicar of prison hall. What do you think, when he shifted to the German side, of his telling the lord of the manor, while the great authority on cattle was quoting his experience on the breeding of bulls, that experience, properly understood, counted for nothing, and that the proper way to breed bulls was to look deep into your own mind, evolve out of it the idea of a perfect bull, and produce him. What do you say, when our county member, growing hot, at cheese and salad time, about the spread of democracy in England, burst out as follows. If we once lose our ancient safeguards, Mr. Blake, I beg to ask you, what have we got left? What do you say to Mr. Franklin answering, from the Italian point of view, we've got three things left, sir, love, music, and salad. He not only terrified the company with such outbreaks as these, but when the English side of him turned up in due course, he lost his foreign smoothness, and, getting on the subject of the medical profession, said such downright things in ridicule of doctors that he actually put good-humoured little Mr. Candy in a rage. The dispute between them began in Mr. Franklin being led, I forget how, to acknowledge that he had latterly slept very badly at night. Mr. Candy, thereupon, told him that his nerves were all out of order and that he ought to go through a course of medicine immediately. Mr. Franklin replied, that a course of medicine and a course of groping in the dark meant, in his estimation, one and the same thing. Mr. Candy, hitting back smartly, said that Mr. Franklin himself was, constitutionally speaking, groping in the dark after sleep, and that nothing but medicine could help him to find it. Mr. Franklin, keeping the ball up on his side, said he had often heard of the blind leading the blind, and now, for the first time, he knew what it meant. In this way, they kept it going briskly, cut and thrust, till they both of them got hot, Mr. Candy in particular, so completely losing his self-control in defense of his profession, that my lady was obliged to interfere and forbid the dispute to go on. This necessary act of authority put the last extinguisher on the spirits of the company. The talk spurted up again here and there, for a minute or two at a time, but there was a miserable lack of life and sparkle in it. The devil, or the diamond, possessed that dinner party, and it was a relief to everybody when my mistress rose and gave the ladies the signal to leave the gentlemen over their wine. I had just ranged the decanters in a row before old Mr. Abelwhite, who represented the master of the house, when there came a sound from the terrace which startled me out of my company manners on the instant. Mr. Franklin and I looked at each other. It was the sound of the Indian drum. As I lived by bread, here were the jugglers returning to us, with the return of the moonstone to the house. As they rounded the corner of the terrace and came in sight, I hobbled out to warn them off. But, as ill luck would have it, the two bouncers were beforehand with me. They whizzed out onto the terrace like a couple of skyrockets, wild to see the Indians exhibit their tricks. The other ladies followed. The gentlemen came out on their side. Before you could say, Lord bless us, the rogues were making their salams, and the bouncers were kissing the pretty little boy. Mr. Franklin got on one side of Miss Rachel, and I put myself behind her. If our suspicions were right, there she stood, innocent of all knowledge of the truth, showing the Indians the diamond in the bosom of her dress. 
I can't tell you what tricks they performed or how they did it. What with the vexation about the dinner, and what with the provocation of the rogues coming back just in the nick of time to see the jewel with their own eyes, I own I lost my head. The first thing that I remember noticing was the sudden appearance on the scene of the Indian traveler, Mr. Murthwaite. Skirting the half-circle in which the gentlefolk stood or sat, he came quietly behind the jugglers and spoke to them on a sudden in the language of their own country. If he had pricked them with a bayonet, I doubt if the Indians could have started and turned on him with a more tigerish quickness than they did, on hearing the first words that passed his lips. The next moment they were bowing and salaaming to him in their most polite and snaky way. After a few words in the unknown tongue had passed on either side, Mr. Murthwaite withdrew as quietly as he had approached. The chief Indian, who acted as interpreter, thereupon wheeled about again towards the gentlefolks. I noticed that the fellow's coffee-colored face had turned gray since Mr. Murthwaite had spoken to him. He bowed to my lady and informed her that the exhibition was over. The bouncers, indescribably disappointed, burst out with a loud, Oh! directed against Mr. Murthwaite for stopping the performance. The chief Indian laid his hand humbly on his breast and said a second time that the juggling was over. The little boy went round with the hat, the ladies withdrew to the drawing-room, and the gentlemen, excepting Mr. Franklin and Mr. Murthwaite, returned to their wine. I and the footman followed the Indians and saw them safe off the premises. Going back by way of the shrubbery, I smelt tobacco and found Mr. Franklin and Mr. Murthwaite, the latter smoking a cheroot, walking slowly up and down among the trees. Mr. Franklin beckoned to me to join them. This, says Mr. Franklin, presenting me to the great traveler, is Gabriel Betteredge, the old servant and friend of our family of whom I spoke to you just now. Tell him, if you please, what you have just told me. Mr. Murthwaite took his cheroot out of his mouth and leaned in his weary way against the trunk of a tree. Mr. Betteredge, he began, those three Indians are no more jugglers than you and I are. Here was a new surprise. I naturally asked the traveler if he'd ever met with the Indians before. No, never, says Mr. Murthwaite. But I know what Indian juggling really is. All you have seen tonight is a very bad and clumsy imitation of it. Unless, after long experience, I am utterly mistaken, those men are high-caste Brahmins. I charged them with being disguised, and you saw how it told on them, clever as the Hindu people are in concealing their feelings. There is a mystery about their conduct that I can't explain. They have doubly sacrificed their caste, first in crossing the sea, secondly in disguising themselves as jugglers. In the land they live in, that is a tremendous sacrifice to make. There must be some very serious motive at the bottom of it and some justification of no ordinary kind to plead for them in recovery of their caste when they return to their own country. I was struck dumb. Mr. Worthwaite went on with his cheroot. Mr. Franklin, after what looked to me like a little private bearing about between the different sides of his character, broke the silence as follows. I feel some hesitation, Mr. Murthwaite, in troubling you with family matters, in which you can have no interest and which I am not very willing to speak of out of our own circle. But after what you have said, I feel bound, in the interests of Lady Verinder and her daughter, to tell you something which may possibly put the clue into your hands. I speak to you in confidence. You will oblige me, I am sure, 
by not forgetting that?' "'With this preface he told the Indian traveller "'all that he had told me at the Shivering Sand. "'Even the immovable Mr. Murthwaite "'was so interested in what he heard "'that he let his cheroot go out. "'Now,' says Mr. Franklin, when he had done, "'what does your experience say?' "'My experience,' answered the traveller, "'says that you have had more narrow escapes of your life, "'Mr. Franklin Blake, than I have had of mine, "'and that is saying a great deal.' "'It was Mr. Franklin's turn to be astonished now. "'Is it really as serious as that?' he asked. "'In my opinion it is,' answered Mr. Murthwaite. "'I can't doubt, after what you have told me, "'that the restoration of the moonstone "'to its place on the forehead of the Indian idol "'is the motive and the justification "'of that sacrifice of caste "'which I alluded to just now. "'Those men will wait their opportunity "'with the patience of cats, "'and will use it with the ferocity of tigers. "'How you have escaped them, I can't imagine,' "'says the eminent traveller, "'lighting his cheroot again, "'and staring hard at Mr. Franklin.' "'You have been carrying the diamond backwards and forwards, "'here and in London, "'and you are still a living man? "'Let us try and account for it. "'It was daylight both times, I suppose, "'when you took the jewel out of the bank in London.' "'Yeah, broad daylight,' says Mr. Franklin. "'And plenty of people in the streets?' "'Plenty.' "'You settled, of course,' "'to arrive at Lady Verinder's house at a certain time? "'It's a lonely country between this and the station. "'Did you keep your appointment?' "'No, I arrived four hours earlier than my appointment.' "'I beg to congratulate you on that proceeding. "'When did you take the diamond to the bank at the town?' "'I took it an hour after I'd brought it to this house, "'and three hours before anybody was prepared for seeing me in these parts.' "'I beg to congratulate you again. "'Did you bring it back here alone?' "'No, I happened to ride back with my cousins and the groom.' "'I congratulate you a third time. "'If you ever feel inclined to travel beyond the civilized limits, Mr. Blake, "'let me know, and I will go with you. "'You are a lucky man.' "'Here I struck in. "'This sort of thing didn't at all square with my English ideas.' "'You don't really mean to say, sir,' I asked, "'that they would have taken Mr. Franklin's life to get their diamond "'if he had given them a chance. "'Do you smoke, Mr. Betteredge?' says the traveller. "'Yes, sir, I do. "'Do you care much for the ashes left in your pipe when you empty it?' "'No, sir, I don't. "'In the country these men came from, "'they care just as much about killing a man.' "'as you care about emptying the ashes out of your pipe. "'If a thousand lives stood between them "'and getting back of their diamond, "'and if they thought they could destroy those lives "'without discovery, they would take them all. "'The sacrifice of caste is a serious thing in India, "'if you like. "'The sacrifice of life is nothing at all.' "'I expressed my opinion upon this, "'that they were a set of murdering thieves.' Mr. Murthwaite expressed his opinion that they were a wonderful people. Mr. Franklin, expressing no opinion at all, brought us back to the matter in hand. "'They have seen the moonstone on Miss Verinder's dress,' he said. "'What is to be done?' 
"'Just what your uncle threatened to do,' answered Mr. Murthwaite. "'Colonel Herncastle understood the people he had to deal with. "'Send the diamond tomorrow, under a guard, "'to be cut up at Amsterdam. "'Make half a dozen diamonds of it, instead of one. "'There is the end of its identity as the moonstone, "'and there is an end of the conspiracy.' "'Mr. Franklin turned to me. "'There is no help for it,' he said. "'We must speak to Lady Verinder tomorrow.' "'What about tonight, sir?' I asked. "'Suppose the Indians come back.' "'Mr. Murthwaite answered me before Mr. Franklin could speak. "'The Indians won't risk coming back tonight,' he said. "'The direct way is hardly ever the way they take to anything, "'let alone a matter like this, "'in which the slightest mistake might be fatal to their reaching their end.' "'But suppose the rogues are bolder than you think, sir,' I persisted. "'In that case,' says Mr. Murthwaite, "'let the dogs loose. "'Have you got any big dogs in the yard?' Two, sir, a mastiff and a bloodhound.' "'They will do. "'In the present emergency, Mr. Betteredge, "'the mastiff and the bloodhound have one great merit. "'They are not likely to be troubled with your scruples "'about the sanctity of human life.' The strumming of the piano reached us from the drawing-room. He threw away his cheroot and took Mr. Franklin's arm to go back to the ladies. I noticed that the sky was clouding over fast as I followed them to the house. Mr. Murthwaite noticed it, too. He looked round at me in his dry, droning way and said, "'The Indians will want their umbrellas, Mr. Betteredge, tonight.' It was all very well for him to joke, but I was not an eminent traveller, and my way in this world had not led me into playing ducks and drakes with my own life among thieves and murderers in the outlandish places of earth. I went into my own little room and sat down in my chair in a perspiration and wondered helplessly what was to be done next. In this anxious frame of mind, other men might have ended by working themselves up into a fever. I ended in a different way. I lit my pipe and took a turn at Robinson Crusoe. Before I had been at it five minutes, I came to this amazing bit, page 169, as follows. Fear of danger is ten thousand times more terrifying than danger itself when apparent to the eyes, and we find the burthen of anxiety greater by much than the evil which we are anxious about. The man who doesn't believe in Robinson Crusoe after that is a man with a screw loose in his understanding, or a man lost in the midst of his own self-conceit. Argument is thrown away upon him, and pity is better reserved for some person with a livelier faith. I was far on with my second pipe, and still lost in admiration of that wonderful book, when Penelope, who had been handing round the tea, came in with her report from the drawing-room. She had left the bouncers singing a duet, words beginning with a large O, and music to correspond. She had observed that my lady made mistakes in her game of whist for the first time in our experience of her. She had seen the great traveller asleep in a corner. She had overheard Mr. Franklin sharpening his wits on Mr. Godfrey, at the expense of ladies' charities in general. And she had noticed that Mr. Godfrey hit him back again rather more smartly than became the gentleman of his benevolent character. She had detected Miss Rachel, apparently engaged in appeasing Mrs. Threadgall by showing her some photographs, and really occupied in stealing looks at Mr. Franklin, which no intelligent lady's mind could misinterpret for a single instant. Finally she had missed Mr. Candy, the doctor who had mysteriously disappeared from the drawing-room, 
and had then mysteriously returned, and entered into conversation with Mr. Godfrey. Upon the whole, things were prospering better than the experience of the dinner gave us any right to expect. If we could only hold on for another hour, old Father Time would bring up their carriages and relieve us of them altogether. Everything wears off in this world, and even the comforting effect of Robinson Crusoe wore off, after Penelope left me. I got fidgety again, and resolved on making a survey at the grounds before the rain came. Instead of taking the footman, whose nose was human, and therefore useless in any emergency, I took the bloodhound with me. His nose, for a stranger, was to be depended upon. We went all round the premises, and out onto the road, and returned as wise as we went, having discovered no such thing as a lurking human creature anywhere. The arrival of the carriages was the signal for the arrival of the rain. It poured as if it meant to pour all night. With the exception of the doctor, whose gig was waiting for him, the rest of the company went home snugly, under cover, in close carriages. I told Mr. Candy that I was afraid he would get wet through. He told me, in return, that he wondered I had arrived at my time of life without knowing that a doctor's skin was waterproof. So he drove away in the rain, laughing over his own little joke, and so we got rid of our dinner company. The next thing to tell is the story of the night. Join us next week Sunday for chapters 11 and 12 of The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. Hope you're enjoying the story, and if you are, please do take a moment and send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. Reviews are always appreciated. Until next Sunday, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Here's a short blooper for you. They have got some remarkably fine skeletons lately at the College of Surgeons, says Mr. Candy across the table in a loud, cheerful voice. I strongly recommend the professor, ma'am. <laughs> I strongly recommend the professor, ma'am, when he next has an hour to spare, to pay them a visit. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.